0: internetist internetist is a word
1: um i'm isn't almost it? positive it's not a word but sure yeah if statisticalize is a word that i can use you can use internetist
0: Welcome to Serious Epidemiology, a podcast from the Society for Epidemiologic Research. I'm Matt Fox from Boston University, and I am pleased to be back once again co-hosting this podcast with Dr. Haley Bannock of the State University of New York at Buffalo. Welcome, Haley.
1: Hi, Matt. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing well. Haley, I've got a question for you. I've, I mm-hmm. put out this poll on Twitter that fascinated me in the results. Would you describe your go-to move as fight or flight? Fight. You're a fighter. Yeah. Okay, because I am a flight person, just so you know that now. So if anything gets contentious on the podcast, you'll know. You can just uh, just start pushing and I'll, I'll back down, okay?
1: Well, that's why we're a terrific team. I will take on the fight and you can flight away.
0: <laughs> I will be flighting away very, very quickly. Okay,
1: good. I got your back, Matt. Not a problem.
0: Much appreciated. All right. So we are delighted this month to be talking about a topic that I am really interested in because, to be totally honest with everyone, I don't really understand this topic nearly as well as one should. The topic is competing risks, and we are very happy to welcome our guest, who is Dr. Brian Lau from Johns Hopkins University. He's an associate professor in the Department of Epidemiology, and he's got research interests in epidemiological and statistical methods for cohort studies and applications of these methods, primarily to HIV cohort studies, which is something that I'm also interested in. It's how I know a fair bit of his work. So welcome to the podcast, Brian.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: We're really glad to have you. If you've never listened to the podcast before, we don't like to jump right into the, the podcast. We like to ask some questions that are probably the most important questions first. So we'll we'll get those out of the way. To start off, can you tell us something that our listeners wouldn't know about you?
2: I used to have a mohawk at one point in time, and it was <laughs> oh. it was a fun uh, haircut.
0: We're gonna need more details. Was this recently?
2: No, this was this was when I was a little bit younger in college, and I uh, got home after after uh, having a mohawk and uh, was visiting my parents. And I hid it under a baseball cap for a little bit <laughs> until I got to a place that was a little bit less contentious for them to see it. They were surprised, but they were ha- they didn't really. Much.
1: Was it full, the shaved the shaved sides and everything?
2: Shaved sides and everything.
0: Wow.
2: And That's I used to, you know, it was a long mohawk, so it went down to, the, like, the middle of my back, essentially, so I could uh, put it, you know, pull it back in the ponytail and everything.
0: Oh, that is so cool. <laughs> I'm so glad that I know this.
1: I say bring it back. Bring back the mohawk.
2: Maybe we should have, you know, an SER mohawk, right? You know, mm-hmm. I'm thinking we should... We should should have something along those lines.
0: An S.E.R. hair competition for sure. All right, second question. Do you have a a biggest fear? My biggest
2: fear would probably be a fear of drowning, mainly because I don't actually understand it because I used to swim so much.
0: You don't understand how drowning works or you don't understand how a person could drown?
2: I don't understand the idea of myself drowning in terms of my fear, right? Just because I've used to swim so much, it's just like something I can't really imagine. So I find that kind of
0: a little frightening. I share that fear with you, I gotta tell you. I definitely share that fear. The last question is, so if you were the king of epidemiology and you could rule by fiat, what major change would you make to epidemiology?
2: That is a hard one. I was hoping you wouldn't ask me something along those lines. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Because, you know, I might say something, and everybody's going to say, what a jerk.
0: That's why we ask. We need to know you better.
2: (laughs) I don't know. I mean, to me, I think in this day and age, I would like to see people a little bit more grounded in the biological or neurological or psychological or social framework that the questions that, that people are coming up with are arising from.
0: Ooh, I think that's a really good one because I don't, I do yeah. think that we don't pay all that much attention to theory anymore.
1: I was expecting you to say p-values.
0: Oh no. <laughs> as in, as in, get rid of them, or everyone had to use them.
1: I assumed get rid of, but I just no, that would be an easy answer to that question, I think.
2: Well, I mean, I think p-values, it's been around for a while. It's kind of ingrained. If I by decree, sure. But are there times when it's useful? I suppose so. I mean, I'm not necessarily all in one or the other, but I tend to shy away from p-values for
0: the most part. Since you said it, I'm just going to ask, what are the situations where you think p-values are useful?
2: For right now, I think for designing clinical trials, the fact that in terms of sample size and things like that, I think it's going to be really hard to move randomized clinical trials away from p-values to a precision in estimate.
0: Mm -hmm. So we're in in the time of COVID. This isn't going to air for a bit, but I'm going to guess that we're still be dealing with COVID. I always make the analogy for my students that p-values come out of a world of decision making. And we're rarely, if ever, in the case where we need to make an immediate decision based on the results of a single study. But in COVID times, I think you could certainly argue that we are. Do you think that COVID makes the case for p-values at all?
2: Well, I think p-values, they have been abused for what they are. I mean, obviously with the sort of arbitrary cutoff, but as a measure of evidence, it is a measure of the evidence that's available and how well it fits the data under the null hypothesis. And so in that regards, if people could use them appropriately, then, you know, it is a tool. It's not the fault of the p-value right at the end of the day.
0: I don't know. I've said some P values do some pretty mean things to me, but <laughs> Well, so you said it's a measure of evidence. I mean, are we talking about clinical trials here or observational studies?
2: Well, just in general, I think in, in statistics, it is it measures some level of evidence in terms of under the null hypothesis it depends on your question. You know, if you're doing causal inference, I don't think it really matters between an RCT design versus some other observational design as, if you, as long as you're going to assume whatever assumptions that need to be layered on.
0: Yeah, and I think that's where it gets tricky, of course, because the assumptions sure. are rarely met probably in clinical trials, definitely not met much in observational studies. But all right, that is not why we, we asked you here. We asked you here to talk about competing risks, something that you know a lot about, something that I would say I have a a lot of students who express a lot of interest in understanding better and i struggled to really help them because while conceptually i can understand what a competing risk is i struggle to truly explain to students what the implications are and what we want to do about it so we assume that our audience works at a fairly high level but it's helpful to start off by talking about what competing risks are and why we should care about them
2: sure so competing risk is a situation when you are following individuals up over time that you are interested in a particular event but for whatever reason there's another event that will preclude the event of interest from actually occurring right and so the prototypical sort of example is in terms of cause specific mortality dying of cardiovascular disease when you're following up individuals over time and for instance people die due to other things like say cancer and so because of that they can no longer die due to cardiovascular disease.
0: And so you've got these events that, as the name implies, are are competing for individuals to cause the event of interest. And where I struggle is to understand when competing risks matter and when they don't. So is this something that I have to be thinking about in every study? I think
2: essentially we have to think about it in terms of our time to event analysis. Let's keep it simple in terms of thinking about whenever you're looking at among individuals over time and trying to figure out some type of risk function, cumulative incidence, for instance, what is occurring to your population or your sample over time? And are they going to be able to actually experience the event of interest? And if not, because there's some competing event, then it it is something we need to take serious. So most of the time, I would say that just about any longitudinal study over time, any cohort study is going to face the issue of competing risks.
0: And in your review of literature, do people actually pay attention to competing risks most of the time in longitudinal studies?
2: I think there's been definitely an uptick in the amount of people who are paying attention to the idea of competing risks and trying to figure it out. I think it's been increasing ever since the finding grade method came out in 1999. The awareness is there. Whether or not people are really doing it, I think, depends on the level of sophistication of the individuals who are doing the analyses and and the sophistication of the reviewers.
0: And I ask because, of course, I'm aware of it. It's something that I know is an issue. And there are certain situations where I have tried to use methods to deal with it because I know it's going to be a problem. But if I have any kind of inclination that it might not be a major issue, it's something that I tend to ignore. And I suspect I'm in the more knowledgeable part of the field. So it does seem to me it's an underutilized or an under problem.
2: Yeah, I think definitely that it is an under addressed problem and it's really trying to make people aware and then try to make the methods accessible. I think the hard part is not so much the methods, right, because at the end of the day, you can sometimes, depending on what statistical software you're using, you can just hit a button. So, you know, it comes down to trying to actually understand what the estimates are and what you're trying to do so that you can have correct inference.
1: So in my research, I look at all-cause mortality a lot as an outcome, and I'll ask you a, a true and false question based on that which is, are there concerns about competing risks when all-cause mortality is your outcome of interest?
0: That wasn't a true-false question.
1: Oh, wait, true or false?
0: True. (laughs) False. (laughs) Um.
1: True or false? Are competing risks a concern when all-cause mortality is your outcome of interest?
0: That was still not a true-false question.
1: (laughs) Yes, it is. True or false? Is it a concern?
0: I think we have different definitions of what a true/false question is.
1: That is a true or false question. Are you concerned? I guess that's not really a true or false, but yes, that's that's the question. You get the idea where I'm going. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I do. I, I would not be concerned in the all cause mortality situation, unless there's something weird going on. I, and I can't think of a situation. You know, I'm I'm not a person who believes in stating absolutes. And maybe that just is from my background of hedging things and, and not being too concrete about certain things. But generally, I wouldn't think that it would be an issue in all cause mortality.
0: Okay, so we've got these situations where you've got some event that is competing with the event that you're interested in estimating, say, the effect of some exposure and some outcome. What's going to happen if I just ignore those competing risks? I mean, you mentioned issues with inference, but what exactly is happening that's going to cause me problems?
2: Well, maybe before we really get into that, I guess the question is, what do you mean by ignore, right? At the end of the day, by ignoring, you're doing something. There's always a choice. And so the question is, what are you doing when you ignore it? And I assume when you mean that, you're just going to censor the individuals at the time of the competing event. Is is that what you mean? Yep. So there's nothing wrong with censoring people at the time of the competing event. In fact, that is how you get at the cost-specific proportional hazards model. And so that's what I like to think of the because specific proportional hazards model is actually more of a two-stage model in the sense that you have to model both the event of interest as well as your competing events to really get at a competing risk model. Because once you have that, you can bring both models together to get at the cumulative incidence function. Now, I think people have, with the literature, has been confusing, right? And people said, oh, you can just ignore it by censoring individuals, and that's the cost-specific, and so then I don't have to do anything else. And so people tend to only look at one half of the model to actually deal with competing risks. And so then what becomes the issue is then people take that hazard ratio from the cost-specific model and essentially assume that it means, okay, here's my Kaplan-Meier in terms of drawing out the adjusted curves, for instance, the exposure is going to have a higher risk if it's above one. And the issue is with the competing event, and if you're not accounting for it, the cumulative incidence curve will actually be higher than what is actually occurring. So if you're basing risk on for some group of individuals and you have censored due to the competing event, then you're going to say, well, at five years, they have a 75% chance of dying when it actually might be lower than that because of dying of some other cause. So there is a potential in just trying to think about what you're doing and what does it actually mean. There is nothing wrong with the because specific hazard. The problem is when you take it to mean an increase in risk, which is not always the case.
0: So how would I interpret it? So I assume what you're saying is if I go with a traditional model, proportional hazards model, where I censor people at the time of the competing event, and then I get a beta coefficient for my exposure, how do I interpret that then correctly if I didn't do anything to specifically account for the competing risk?
2: I actually think from the actuary sciences, they had a term for what the hazard used to mean, and it's the forces of mortality. And so that term actually is a really nice term because the way I tend to think of it is that the hazard is a force in that direction towards the event of interest or towards the competing event. And so it, you can look at it in terms of those forces in terms of acting on person. To get a little bit more into the weeds, there's essentially two different frameworks for competing risks. And the the first was the old-fashioned standard, and it's called the latent failure time model. And that's where you say everybody has a failure to every single cause of death. And we can only see the very first one. And so there's a lot of identifiability issues with that model. Of late, a lot of people who do research in competing risks have moved to a multi-state model. And the multi-state model is kind of like we have a lot of forces acting upon in terms of these uh, hazards, right? And so at any point in time, I have a hazard acting on me for dying due to a cardiovascular event right now, being hit by a car, which is probably pretty low since I'm in a house.
0: We hope, we hope it's low.
2: I I hope it's low. And so those forces are acting us at any point in time, right? And so given that, it's directing us towards which event we're gonna be more pushed to if we were to have an event at this point in time. And so you can think about it at a point in time, if I was to actually die right now, then the probability of which event it was would be essentially the cause-specific hazard that's occurring for one of the events over the sum of all cause-specific hazards. And so you can think about it in terms of that probability, but it's hard to think about this forces acting on a person at a point in time. another analogy I have is is more of a sports analogy, an idea that in soccer, for instance, you have a ball on on a soccer field, football for those of you who don't live in the U.S. Anymore. But there's the there's the ball, right? And you have forces acting on it by the players and the direction that they have towards one goal or the other. The thing is what happens to that ball is, is uncertain because at the end of the day with the cost-specific hazard, we're not even really looking at where it ends up. We tend to be looking at some hazard ratio. And so now we just know relative forces by some exposure. So we don't even know where we're starting from in terms of a baseline hazard. And so it becomes really confusing to start thinking about how to interpret that proportional hazards when it's actually just a proportional of the force acting in one direction. So I don't know if that analogy helps, but that is one way I actually try to think of it sometimes.
0: Yeah, no, it does. It makes me realize this is really complicated stuff. And so what happens then if I ignore competing risks, but want to try to interpret my results? Am I pretending that I live in a world in which these other mortality forces don't exist if I just ignore it? Or is there some other interpretation that I would put on it.
2: Yeah, that's how a lot of people think about it in terms of if I died to do this uh, cardiovascular disease, and that's the only thing I'm looking at, and I censor all other things, then I'm ignoring all other potential ways I could die. So that is a world that doesn't exist. And so it's a figment of our imaginations, right, to remove that. And the question then you have to think about in terms of your exposure is, does that exposure have some effect on your competing events as well? And so, you know, if you're talking about something like salt in your diet, in terms of hypertension, it probably increases your cardiovascular disease. But does it also affect other things in terms of probably your kidneys and potentially kidney death? possibly and so you have to think about what is going on in the in the whole biological system that's the way I think about it in terms of sort of what's pushing individual
0: so we're talking about trying to model the realities of a world that is very complex and trying to account for multiple things going on at once and I hadn't really thought about what you said which is that it isn't just that I want to account for these other sources of events that would prevent me from experiencing the first event it's also that the effects that I'm trying to estimate are not independent of the competing events. It seems to me that's going to cause problems both in terms of trying to estimate the effect of my exposure when my exposure is also affecting other events, but also just thinking about confounding and all of the other things that I have to deal with to try to get to causal effects. It seems to me like these models will get pretty complicated pretty quickly. Is there a way to simplify or are we just living in a world that is so complex ignoring it is just going to be ignoring reality?
2: I think it comes down to trying to simplify things as much as possible by coming up with some type of framework. You know, we've talked about the latent failure time framework as well as the multi-state. And so the independence dependence is really a thing that occurs in the latent failure time approach, right? Because all of them are different events that could occur, right? And so there could be dependence or the events could be independent from one another, In the multi-state world, it's trying to deal with a point in time in terms of the transitions to the different potential states of dying due to one thing or another. Now, because of that, it really comes down to, in the multi-state framework, those events are actually one random variable. And so the talk of essentially whether or not Things are dependent or independent doesn't actually apply in the multi-state world. And so that there you can actually see where thinking about what type of framework you work in actually might help simplify some of the assumptions that exist. Now, that still doesn't get around you know the fact that the variable you're interested in might be actually affecting your event of interest as well as your competing event. And that is something you can't really get around. And if you think about it in that multi-state framework, then it be, may, starts making sense why You need to actually adjust for confounders of your exposure and your competing event, because if it's all one random variable, then we have confounders that seem to be related to our outcome and our exposure. So we need to account for them, even though our outcome is now our competing event as well.
0: So it's complicated
2: it's complicated. But I think at the same time, we're, we're trying to make it more and more accessible. And I think the increase in the number of papers that are trying to use competing risks and people trying to approach the problem has increased because people are trying to make it more and more accessible. So I think it's getting there.
0: Yeah. And I think obviously the simpler that we can make this so that people can actually implement it, the better. When you talk about these multi state models, are you still talking about statistical models here? Because to me, that sounds almost like a an infectious disease transmission dynamics type model where I'm putting people in states and modeling out what happens over time?
2: The multi-state model, there is a statistical sense for the multi-state model, but it is very similar to the infectious disease models where you transition. So everybody starts out in the simple model would be your alive disease state model where you're alive and healthy, and then you potentially transition to a disease state. So you have actually two states. And then you can think about making it more complicated and having three states where you start off healthy and alive, and then you died to do one thing or you died to do to another thing. And then, of course, you can model things like moving through different states for some disease process. And death would be your only absorbing state.
0: So it seems to me that part of the problem that we're in with the competing risks is this obsession that we have with trying to identify causation within just one tiny little realm of the universe that we live in, as opposed to start thinking about systems and thinking about health as a series of states that we could be in with any number of illnesses and and different exposures will have effects on different states that we could be in. And I wonder if competing risks is sort of a move Movement towards that more complex way of thinking about things, or if it's, it's really just a statistical approach to, to solve a specific problem.
2: So I haven't thought about that. You're right. Multi-state models in general, I think, are definitely more trying to model it in a more complex type of world, right, and have it in different states. And you can get as complicated as you once but you know it becomes harder and harder to estimate the model as as you get more and more states that being said the competing risk model using the multi-state framework is one approach to address the problem and it makes a simple multi-state model in the sense of you just have one state you're in initially your healthy state and then you potentially move to your different outcomes. And it's essentially partitioning out your individuals and your your event space into those different outcomes of different types of mortality.
1: Related to Matt's question about causation, how does the competing risks framework and and concepts we're talking about relate to the counterfactual framework that is often taught these days in epidemiology programs?
2: That's a Great question. You know, we can think of some RCT. We can imagine RCT and exposure and thinking about, okay, at a point in time, right before randomization, I've a potential outcome for whatever I'm looking at in terms of event of interest. You either have it or you don't have it. And now it becomes more complicated in the sense that, well, you might have, say, death as a competing event in an RCT, right? And the fact that you're following up individuals who might be ill and they could die and maybe that was not your event of interest, but it was more like discharge from the hospital or something like that. In that case, you have it in the RCT world. It's something that, that actually is there and you need to actually deal with. In fact, in probably a month or so ago, there was a paper, I think it was in Annals, that mentioned essentially a couple of the trials that were happening in terms of COVID and the fact that they really didn't account for competing risks. And they actually went through a nice example of it and explained what was occurring. And so at the end of the day, with that trial, you have to think about what are the outcomes that could occur and what could prevent my participants to not experience the event of interest that we're trying to actually estimate. And so you can think that there is a potential outcome for these competing events as well. And so you have to think about that sort of spectrum in terms of whether a person is gonna be discharged, whether they're gonna stay in the hospital or whether they're gonna die prior to discharge. And that's your, your event.
0: The COVID seems to be a really good example here because you could be testing out a drug and you wanna know whether or not that drug is gonna have some impact on viral load or time to recovery. But you could have, obviously you to have people who die in the interim. And if people die in the interim, obviously, they can't become cured. And it seems to me in in trials, we often then have composite outcomes for exactly that reason. But it doesn't really tell you about that thing that you might want to know about. So do competing events get used in trial spaces? or, Or is this largely an observational model?
2: It is definitely still applicable to RCTs. And in terms of it is something that People who are running trials need to actually deal with, and sometimes they deal with it by what we are calling ignoring it, which is doing something, right? And so it does apply to the trial space, and I might be misremembering, but I think Peter Austin came out with a paper essentially on advice for a competing risk in the trial setting. I'm not exactly sure if I'm remembering the right reference, but it does occur. And is it coming into practice in the trial world? I don't know. I'm not familiar with all the different trials that are being run. Obviously, the paper that I mentioned in Annals, bring it up in the the trials for COVID, is trying to bring it into the world there and show, you know, what's going on. So it's getting out there, I think, slowly.
0: Okay, so when I think about models that involve censoring and and models that involve competing risks, the way I think about this, and and I'm hoping you'll correct me where I get this wrong, but the way I think about it is, if I have a a model in which I'm treating people as censored, essentially what my model is doing is it's using information from people who were not censored and it's filling in, it's imputing the information for those people. So it's essentially saying, if I hadn't been lost to follow-up from this trial, but I'm still at risk for the event, What is likely to have happened to me? And obviously, we know there are a lot of assumptions that go into that in order for that to work. So then when you move into a competing risks framework, is it analogous? Am I asking the question, what would be the effect of this exposure, say, you know, the effect of salt on cardiovascular disease, if I hadn't died from being hit by the bus? I mean, is that the question that we're asking? Or is it more complex than that?
2: that's an interesting question when it comes to censoring and competing risks, right? Why not just treat those who are lost to follow-up as a competing event? The issue there, I think, is that lost to follow-up isn't really from a standard cohort design. Is not a event that actually is of natural interest, right? In the sense that it is a biological event or along those lines, right? So the event of interest, such as death due to cardiovascular disease, can still occur. Uh, it's just happens that we won't actually be able to see it, right? And so the competing risk framework is more for, in my mind, something that tends to occur as part of the disease process that you're talking about. Now, I will say for you, Matt, and me, when we're dealing with clinical cohorts where essentially the the clinical cohort is a part of their biological process of disease because the fact you're treating them and taking care of them, they essentially are lost to care, then that becomes more, in my mind, of a competing event in the sense that what occurs might be quite different in terms of the event of interest. And we might say we want to use a competing risk framework for that in the sense that in terms of, say, an event of interest might be like cardiovascular death or or death due to HIV among those who go off of treatment or something simple along those lines. We can observe those deaths that occur, but if they were to drop out, not only changes their their risk because of the fact that they're no longer in care. So no longer are we really talking about answering the question, what is the risk of some exposure on uh, HIV mortality within a clinical care system?
0: Yeah, to make that slightly more concrete, we ask these questions all the time in the countries that I'm most familiar with, South Africa, where we want to know what's the effect of HIV treatment on, say, mortality. And then we have this question of what do we do with people who are lost to follow up? Because if I just treat them as, as censored, then I'm assuming that they just continue on getting their treatment, but I just can't observe them when in fact, we know that if they're lost to follow-ups, it's extremely likely that they're no longer on treatment. And so it might make sense in that case to treat that as a competing risk. Right. Because I think at the end of
2: the day, you're question of interest is actually more along the lines of among people who are being treated within the clinic, what is the effect of the exposure as they are receiving care, right? And we're not as interested in the question of what is the effect of the exposure once somebody has left care, because we know that we want to get them back in care, because that's probably the best thing you can do for those individuals.
0: Exactly. So then that sort of tells me what I do with the censoring. If I'm treating somebody as censored, then I'm essentially assuming, you know, they continue on as usual. But what am I doing? So if I put them into a competing risks framework, am I assuming that a person didn't die of another cause? Is that what I am estimating? What would happen if you hadn't died of the other event? So I guess what what we haven't really talked about is what
2: do we mean by then taking into a competing risk? framework, right? We've talked a little bit about the cause specific. And so you can model the cause specific for your, say, death while being observed within the clinic, but then your competing event, if we're going to say censoring, for instance, or, you know, take it to a different analogy, some other type of death, right? You're putting those events into essentially a second different model. That's why I kind of think of it as two-stage in that you can then estimate your cause-specific hazard for your competing event, right? And so bringing those two models together, then you can actually get back to the cumulative incidence functions and see how it changes risk.
0: And so by cumulative incidence there, do you essentially mean the cumulative incidence of having either event or having one or the other event? It's cumulative incidence of having one or the other event in the sense that
2: to make it a little bit more concrete in terms of our cardiovascular question it is, you know, what is the effect of salt on death due to cardiovascular mortality prior to any other cause of death versus what is the effect of salt on the effect of other causes of death, right, in terms of it, so that essentially you can have a cumulative incidence curve for both um, for cardiovascular disease, as well as for the other causes, so that when you bring them together, the cumulative incidence curves cannot sum to more than one, which can happen if you were just to use a cause-specific model for one event and then translate it into the kaplan Meyer and then one minus the kaplan Meyer. So that is why it becomes important to think about what you're doing with the cause-specific, because at the end of the day, right, we know that you could have Estimate death due to one factor or, or one cause and death due to another cause. And if you were to bring those uh, cumulative, you know, one minus the Kaplan-Meier curves together, there would sum to more than one. And probability of dying due to more than one thing did not be greater than one.
1: I'm getting a a very good, clear understanding of the rationale and and theoretical framework for competing risk. For those people who actually want to implement these approaches in their research, because you've made such a convincing argument that we all should, what are the most common models that people use to do so? I know you mentioned Fine Grey a little earlier, but can you describe the more common approaches that people take for these issues?
2: Sure. So we've talked a little bit about the cause specific hazard proportional models in the sense that really talked about ignoring, but like I said, it's more of a two stage model. So you model both approaches. And then you can essentially take those two models and you can jump through a lot of hoops to then get back at the cumulative incidence functions based upon whether you're exposed or not exposed. But I think what Fine and Gray did in terms of a nice contribution to the literature was essentially restored the relationship between a hazard function and increase or decrease in risk, depending on the direction of that hazard ratio. Now, that specific type of hazard ratio is called the subdistribution hazard. And so what they're doing and how that's different from the cost-specific hazard is rather than essentially censoring individuals when they have the competing event, individuals that have the competing event in the sub-distribution hazard are actually maintained in the risk set. And really, the approach that Fine and Gray used for that was essentially because they're basing it off of essentially what is known as cure models and essentially trying to keep a placeholder for those individuals who have died due to other things to restore the one to one relationship between the subdistribution hazard ratios and the cumulative incidence function curves. So those are the two main models. One other approach I really like doing, especially when we have sort of a set time frame um, in terms of uh, exposures at baseline uh, and essentially all your confounders at baseline is actually to do a non-parametric cumulative incidence curve, right? Because then we can actually use uh, inverse probability weighting to actually reweight the cumulative incidence curves to get adjusted cumulative incidence curves for competing risks. So that would be sort of the third approach that I like to use quite often stay away from uh, proportional hazards models sometimes because of the proportional hazards.
1: So the choice between using the cause-specific relative hazard and the sub-distribution relative hazard relates to the question you're interested in? Is that why you would choose one over the other?
2: These days, actually, a lot of the advice of people who um, are experts in this field is actually to look at all types of hazards. Look at the cost-specific hazards for your event of interest as well as your competing event, but also look at your subdistribution proportional hazards or, or similarly the cumulative incidence function, accounting for competing risks and dividing up that event space. So the reason to do that is you can actually get a better understanding of what's going on in your sample over time in terms of the events. And as an example, one paper that um, my colleagues and I published in Annals in 2015 was looking at the trends in non-AIDS-defining cancers, NAA Accord, the North American Cohort Collaboration on Research and Design. And essentially, we were looking at trends in, in cancer because there's a lot of mixed evidence about what's happened with the different cancers over time. And so we looked at both the cost-specific proportional hazards models for each of the cancers that we we're looking at, as well as the cumulative incidence function, as well as the subdistribution proportional hazards model. And what you can see there, because essentially our competing event was mortality, and our event of interest, let's say, was due to lung cancer. So what we would see there is that the cause-specific hazard might be decreasing, similar to the general public, in terms of the actual cause-specific hazard ratio, right, suggesting that the forces of mortality towards lung cancer incidence is actually decreasing over time. But the issue there was when you look at what's going on with the cause-specific proportional hazards model for death, because these are people with HIV and it was over 1996 to 2012-ish, essentially there was a big decrease in mortality, right? And so you could see that the effect of calendar time was had an incredible effect on mortality because of the implementation and advent of ART, effective ART. So with that, what we see then is that the actual risk of lung cancer was actually kind of stable in the HIV population over time. And so when you look at the cumulative incidence function or the sub-distribution proportional hazards model, we saw that essentially it was remained one over, over that time frame. And for the general public, or our HIV negatives rather, they were actually declining over time because they didn't have this competing event of mortality as much. And so what that told us by bringing this information together is that people might be still experiencing the same sort of rate of lung cancer, but that's mainly because they're able to survive long enough to actually experience it, right? Because of the fact that the mortality has decreased so much that individuals could actually stay around and actually develop lung cancer.
0: So it really does feel to me like we are potentially getting very confused answers or getting the wrong answers because we don't pay attention to these competing risks nearly as much as we should. In your experience with working with these, how much, how much of a difference in the answers that you get generally does failure to account for competing risks using one of these models typically make and is the direction of the bias in a way predictable? And I realize I said bias, I mean, is it bias? I don't know that it's. I would term it as bias because you're actually estimating different things. So
2: if you're in the cause-specific, then it's a different hazard and different hazard ratio than a sub-distribution hazard and hazard ratio. And they need to be interpreted differently, right? And so that is the issue. With the cause-specific, you can't just take that one hazard ratio and then bring it over to your to your cumulative incidence function of your one minus Kaplan-Meier, essentially.
0: So it really is a different approach.
2: Yeah, I think it's really a different approach with different interpretations. And, and so it's more comes down to understanding what you're trying to get at and what these estimates you can use to actually infer. And that's why I think, you know, the general message has been, OK, do the cost specific, but also do the sub-distribution or estimate the competing risk cumulative incidence function because it'll tell you more about what's going on
0: that makes a lot of sense. So I guess the last thing I really want to ask about is, I don't know if you've read these papers, Jess Edwards has one and Chanel Howe has another in which they talk about this framework of all your data are are missing. Essentially, they, they conceptualize all sources of bias as missing data problems. Now, as you just said, In the case of competing events, it isn't necessarily a bias problem, but would you still conceptualize this in that missing data framework? And if so, do we have to deal with then all of the assumptions of the missing data problems, the missing at random type assumptions?
2: I guess it comes down to what you're trying to estimate in your question, first of all. I generally would not think of it as a missing data problem in the sense that it is part of the real world, right? If you are trying to estimate something in a non-existent hypothetical world where the competing events don't actually exist, then yeah, I could say, yes, your events of interest is missing and you want to try to get back at that. But that's a a question that I personally am not so interested in, Mm -hmm. right? I actually want to deal with the events that are actually out there and try to affect the world that we actually live in. So I don't think of it as a missing data problem. And it comes back to the really that idea of the multi-state model where essentially all events, your event of interest in your competing events are essentially one random variable.
0: Yeah, it really does sound fundamentally different. I mean, I keep asking the question just to get it right in my mind, but I'm really not trying to ask the question, what if this person hadn't died? I'm really trying to account for the multiple events that I am at risk for and try to see how they work in concert. Right.
2: And, and you know, I think Jess Edwards would also agree with me in terms of we're not really interested in, in modeling that world that it doesn't exist.
0: Uh, so the last question I wanted to ask you is, so what is your sense for the direction that this field is going? Are there new approaches that people are working on? Maybe you're working on? Well, I think where it's going is really getting
2: at sort of the causal inference. I think a lot of competing risk really hasn't been dealt with in that framework there is some work in competing risks on how do you do multiple imputation. in terms of other areas that that things are moving you know I think uh, Katie Lesko had a nice paper published in terms of when to censor and that was how do we actually define when to actually censor individuals
0: well it sounds like a lot of really cool stuff going on I really appreciate you coming on and explaining this all to us I have learned a lot so we, we really appreciate it thank
2: you I really appreciate you guys having me.
0: Well, for those of you who are not members of the Society for Epidemiological Research, I want to recommend that you consider becoming a member. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, and it also gets you access to the SER library, where there are a whole bunch of really great learning materials, seminars, and activities. You can find out more at epiresearch.org. That's epi research.org we also want to plug our sister podcast the one that we love casual inference from the american journal of epidemiology with with ellie murray and lucy d'agostino mcgowan it's a great podcast and if you like this one we think you'll like that one as well so we really appreciate you listening and we hope you'll be on the lookout for our next episode